Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Thanks for checking into the best Houston sports podcast. Robert with my co-sports radio 610, Sean Bajani. And in this one, we preview Texans, Titans, an injury update. And we pay tribute to a Houston baseball figure that we lost this week. But Sean, we got to start off with the Stroud situation. And if the Texans had no shot at the playoffs and Stroud was out, I'd say, hey, start Davis Mills to see if you could up his trade value. But I feel differently right now. This feels like a game manager, veteran quarterback situation. Would you start Mills over Keenum right now? 100%. And it shouldn't even be a question. I, I say that because there's there's still a lot of Keenum truthers, so to speak, out there that, uh, you know, think that he needs a shot and gives him the best chance to win. Coming in, there's a reason why you go one, two, three with Stroud, Mills, and Keenum to begin with is Mills is going to start because they believe that he gives them the best chance to win. And your, your questions going into this game go far deeper than just that of the quarterback, but it's also to who is that quarterback going to have at their disposal in terms of offensive weapons. There's questions about, obviously, Nico Collins and the rest of the receiver core. Never mind if Dalton Schultz is going to be made available. And you got to talk about all of that stuff before you even get to what, are this, what does the defense look like? Just from a team-wide standpoint, plenty of questions. I don't know how many teams in the NFL actually have two backup quarterbacks that have both held uh, the role of starter for multiple seasons prior to. I mean, the Texans, I think for all intents and purposes, you could probably make an argument they have one of the better quarterback rooms in the entire league, at least if we're talking about experience and, you know, a marginal level of some success uh, before. So I've been told multiple times already since Sunday, hey, Davis Mills, 4-1 and one inside the AFC South and in his career on the road. Cool. Cool story, bro. Uh, doesn't make me feel that great, <laughs> that much better about this game going in against the Titans on Sunday. But there's no question you're starting Davis Mills uh, on Sunday if C.J. Stroud can't play. And I'm in the camp that believes if C.J. Stroud can play, you don't play C.J. Stroud on Sunday under any circumstances. Hey, Davis Mills beat Tennessee at Tennessee last year with a probably worst cast of characters, although when we're going to get to the injury report, the cast of characters aren't much different than last year when you really look at it right now. But at least that should give you some positive vibes. Oh, Davis Mills has done it before. Yeah, he's done it before with a completely different uh, team. We talk about the turnover, the squad, you know, this year to last year, it's literally half different. There are 50% new players. There's an entirely new coaching staff for the most part, you know, besides the eight guys you retain, you know, at various positions on both sides of the ball. But is, is Davis Mills potentially going into this Tennessee game with far fewer weapons than he'd had to work with in the previous two seasons of him being a starting quarterback with them? I don't know. You don't have Brandon Cooks, but you got a guy in Noah Brown who's four weeks removed from back-to-back gigantic games <laughs> against the Buccaneers and the Bengals and him looking like, holy smokes, is this just a plug-and-play situation? Is this guy breaking out after, you know, being mired, you know, as the third receiver with the Cowboys for the previous three, four years? I mean, I don't know. He's certainly got to step up. Uh, Robert Woods, who has vanished in recent weeks, wasn't even targeted against the Broncos. 
and had maybe a handful of looks, you know, this past game, but anything that happened well beyond the nine and a half minute mark of the fourth quarter, I don't even look at, I don't care in terms of what the Texans did and didn't do offensively. The one thing that I would say is that this is Bobby Solick's toughest challenge, toughest obstacle yet in his coaching career, never mind just what he's done here as a play caller and offensive coordinator for the Texans. I mean, your back's up against the wall right now, and for a team that still has as good an opportunity as any other team mired with a six, seven and 7-6 record, one of those six teams in the AFC that's just fighting tooth and nail to just get that seventh and final wild card spot, it's just difficult having to rely upon Hutchinson and Mechie and Woods and Noah Brown Getting Dalton Schultz back and also having Brevin Jordan at your disposal, it's its still very, very difficult. No matter who's throwing the ball, it's just as much about that as who's catching the ball. I want to talk to you about who's got our quarterbacks back, so to speak, in a second. But I just want to remind everybody, I talk Rockets tomorrow with Cooper Klein with Rockets Chop Shop. Make sure you're getting notifications on YouTube to see our latest shows. So, Sean... Here's what I was thinking about. There's one key guy for the Texans O-line we haven't discussed much. I don't even know if we discussed him at all this year, and that's offensive line coach Chris Strausser. Before he came to Houston, he was the Colts O-line coach for four years. I bring him up because the problem I, I feel like in pass protection has been more com- miscommunication and blown assignments than anything. And I know part of that, is how the injuries have caused guys to play out of position. And it's been a musical chairs and some chemistry issues. But, Sean, how much of what's been going on should fall on Strasser, who coached an elite Colts line his first couple of years, but they were pretty disappointing in Indy his last year there. When you're not a successful group uh, and you're that position coach, you're going to shoulder blame. And, look, even when times are bad, really bad they can get a lot worse than what you've witnessed through the first you know 14 weeks of an nfl season believe it or not with this texans offensive line never mind the injuries but you know the miscommunications blown assignments all that stuff uh as well you know it's a question that only really they can answer internally we don't get to sit out there and watch the entire practice you know we're limited we maybe see a few individual drills here and there and then we get to watch the games on sunday along with everybody else and when you see the repeated issues um, you know, kind of occur, that's when you really start to have, you know, you have to ask yourself or ask them, you know, the more difficult questions. But position coaches, for one, aren't available, but maybe a couple of three times a season. And we've already spoken to them twice before the season and once during the season about a month and a half ago. So I don't know when the next time is going to be, but I would really be interested in hearing Chris Strauser, who the one time that I had a chance to talk with him exclusively was pretty forthright in his responses in breaking down evaluations of players like Kenyon Green, uh, particularly, who, you know, flat out said that, hey, you know what, he's got a long road ahead of him. A few weeks later, he ended up suffering a season-ending injury, and, you know, that's all she wrote. But for a guy and a coaching staff, really, in general, it's been pretty forthright in their evaluations and what they're seeing and trusting that we're all seeing the same thing, you know, with a little bit lesser of a trained eye. I'd want to know if if he feels like he's pushing this group to the brink, if he's running as physical a practice, you know, with these guys as possible, because his their head coach, D'Amico Ryans, you know, has talked about how physical he wants both of his lines to be, that swarm mentality, not just on defense, but on offense as well. Are you seeing it? D'Amico Ryans, two weeks ago, described what he wants to see 
in terms of an offensive line as being physical, as being one that displaces the opponent, as being gritty and nasty. In no way, shape, or form does that describe anyone on that offensive line outside of maybe Drew Scruggs, who you'd mentioned is playing out of position and is a rookie. And what should the expectations really be for a guy who just spent, you know, 12 of the last 14 weeks on the shelf with a hamstring injury? So, yes. Chris Strouser, you know, should very well be questioned in terms of the types of type of job that he's doing right now. And I think you have to say that, you know what, despite all the injuries and what's should what's realistically asked of him, it, it, it's not up to snuff in my mind, because maybe it just doesn't fit with the personnel that you have. But I think you always feel as a coach that you could be doing more. You could be making it harder. You could dumb down the verbiage or maybe make the verbiage a little bit more difficult to decipher in terms of what their opponent's hearing on a week-in and week-out basis, which I think that's where they have to take the hardest look at going into this game. How deceptive are they really being with their verbiage, with their alignment, with their assignment? It's week 14. The tells are out there. The scouting reports, the film is out. Teams are figuring out what you're doing, what you're not doing, what you're showing, and what you're not showing. That's as much about as everything, you know, with the Texans' shortcomings on the O-line as anything else. Yeah, you were talking a little bit about the physical stuff and, you know, if they're more physical. It's To me, it's so hard with the way practices and the way you're limited with practices and you're limited with stuff and guys being injured to really do anything about that. It's either either these guys are or aren't. I guess my concern with Strouser is missed assignments, that sort of stuff, like guys not – you know, being in the spot where they're supposed to be to block the guy. We've seen just way too many guys just coming in untouched. And I guess that's my thing is like, how does that happen so frequently where some guy that's like, you know, we've seen some of the best edge rushers in the NFL just walk in untouched because Tunsil goes one way to make one block or George Fant goes one way to make one block and they decide that they're not going to go block the edge guy and or, you know, and that's a whole offense system because maybe running backs and tight ends are, are involved, Sean. But also, there's just too much of that where I think it's inner offensive line stuff. When you draw plays up, you know, on paper, sometimes they can look really, really good. Sometimes when you're walking through them and you're going 50, 75 percent, you know, on a practice field, they can look pretty good. It's a very difficult ask, though, at times, given the uh, position that a particular player's in their athletic ability to make a difficult reach block and the same can be said at any position and I go back to that sack that Fant gave up from Huff this past week where I think it was Devin Singletary lined up on the left side offset of CJ Stroud who was in shotgun the one thing to me in my mind you can't do is ask a running back to pick up a free rusher that's coming off the opposite side of the line that you were lined up on. That is a difficult ask. It's a difficult ask to want your left tackle to reach block somebody that's lined up on the B gap when the nearest gap to them is, you know, the C. Rather, it's difficult to ask them to go from the A, you know, to get an A gap because B gap is on their right-hand side too. It's, they're very difficult things. And so when you talk about communication, is it communication? Is it unrealistic scheming and an unrealistic ask to want Devin Singletary to go over and block an edge 
yeah, that's ridiculous. I don't know if they're asking them to do that or not. I just can tell you what we're seeing. And then if it's that big of a communication issue, the first thing that George Fance should do is slide his own protection to the right and say, there's no way in hell I can let Huff come off and take a free shot at my quarterback who has no idea that that's coming and certainly can't expect their running back who's standing all of 5'9 and 210 pounds and Devin Singletary to take care of a 300-pounder, you know, coming at you like a bull out of a china closet. So for all of those reasons, yeah, I think they need to revisit scheme. I think they need to revisit what they're realistically asking players who, for the most part, are playing out of position, at least internally. And then, two, your highest-paid left tackle isn't at full strength. Your starting right tackle isn't at full strength and isn't really a upper-level starting tackle in the league. He's been a replacement-level player, and he'll probably get paid as such this offseason by somebody else, not named the Houston Texans and George Fant. It's it's a tough ask across the board. Yeah, I want to come back to Fant just a second. But Fairbairn and Schultz, Dalton Schultz, practiced Wednesday. Great sign for those two guys. Blake Cashman, Tavio Thomas, Sound as though they're out for Sunday. Of the other key injured Texans, Sean, who do we have the best shot at seeing, if any, between Nico, Stroud, and Will Anderson? Will Anderson's curious to me, DNP, on Wednesday's practice report. I I say curious because I, I wasn't as concerned about Will Anderson. He hurt his ankle late in that Jets game. And I thought, like, you know what? This is precautionary, possibly. He's one of their better defenders. Let's not even risk it in this blowout. We're just going to hold him out. DNP, they've kind of treated him gingerly in recent weeks anyway. It hadn't been weird to see him show up on the injury report. It's been a knee. Now it's an ankle. He's banged up. I want to follow that the rest of this week. That's obviously going to be a big loss. Uh, Even though, look, Jonathan Grenard on the other end, he's been their most consistent edge rusher all season long in a career year. You feel pretty good about a guy that's, you know, in that group, been there, done that before, led the team in sacks last year with eight, eight and a half, and Jerry Hughes. Could he fill that role if need be? Absolutely. But they like their rotations and being able to keep fresh bodies on there. So Will's a big one. Dalton Schultz is a huge one. I mean, that to me is the biggest one. He was out in full dress today, full participant in practice on Wednesday. You got to have some type of reliable weapon. He's third on the team in touchdown receptions with five this season. It's been a target in the end zone, in the red zone. The Texans need him if they're going to go with anybody outside of C.J. Stroud at quarterback, but really anybody at quarterback. If you don't have Nico, if you don't have Tank, uh, you're limited on weapons. Schultz has been a big one. They've got to get contributions outside of that, but at least he gives you uh, something to sort of hang your hat on, even though he's rarely been looked at here in the last couple of three games. Those are the big ones. Noah Brown's big too. Look, limited today. Robert Woods gets a veteran rest day still as depleted as the receiver core is. You'd think you'd want him out there catching as many balls from Davis Mills and Case Keenum as possible but they've operated pretty much a status quo as they have through the first 14 weeks. So that's, that's going to be an interesting watch, but those two guys for me, Will Anderson, Dalton Schultz are the two biggest names to watch. I just don't think it's realistic that CJ Stroud plays in this game. And I would be shocked if Nico Collins did having sustained a second calf injury within the last month, I'm just going to mark him off the board, uh, you know, already. The Schultz return. I was thinking about this. Is Brevin Jordan one of your better slot options now that Schultz is back? 
considering his versatility. And I mean, his real competence as a tight end is as a receiver. I think we talked about, you know, the potential of going with more two tight end sets going into the Jets game, just how they utilized Eric Saubert, who they brought in recently, because you know you didn't have Schultz available, along with Brevin Jordan. Does that help the run game get going a little bit more frequently? It wasn't bad in the first half. The Texans just didn't go back to that well in the second half and utilize it as much as I thought they could have. Now, look, if you have Dalton Schultz, who isn't a great run blocker anyway, but at the end of the day, it's about a look. It's about deception, creating that small shred of doubt that maybe could give you an edge in a particular run play if you mix in some play action, things like that. Can you go two tight end sets with Davis Mills and Brevin Jordan? Absolutely. Should they? Absolutely. I think that's um, something that Bobby Slowick has to take a good, hard look at and ask himself, can we be effective with Davis Mills as our quarterback and run two tight end sets and create deception and create that millisecond of doubt in that front seven on Sunday? I think the answers are resounding yes. At least you have to try it. I'm going to go back to George Fant for a second because he didn't practice Wednesday. He's been dealing with a hip issue. This goes back not just to current but it went back to at least last week, I know. It could have been part of what played into his performance against the Jets. Sean, we forget the Texans gave up a fifth-round pick for Josh Jones. His pro football focus grade at right tackle last year with the Cardinals was a strong 75.8. I mean, that's great. Fans grade this year is 64.4. Any chance that we see Jones on Sunday in place of Fant, I mean, I guess there's a possibility because your only other option is Charlie Heck, who's a tackle. And I'm, I'm sure they have uh, another depth guy, but I don't know his name for a reason on the practice squad. Jones is probably by this point, your freshest, healthiest body uh, that is most experienced who played one game and started one game at left guard this season. And it's since, you know, uh, broken his hand, which required surgery it's been weeks since he had to wear a club. It's not been uncommon for George Fan over the course of the last couple of weeks to show up on the injury report. So that's going to be another one to look out for. To me, it would be a big deal. Um, I know what the past says in regards to Josh Jones, but if you could hang your hat on anything, it's been really kind of the right side of that offensive line, despite the multitude of centers that they've gone through. Dieter, at least, has been the guy for the last month along with Shaq Mason, who hasn't taken a snap off this season. And George Fant, if you have to change yet another lineman, there's a communication gap there. There is just a synergy concern um, that I think, regardless of who is at quarterback, it's just about being effective in communication, in execution, and for a team that went a month without allowing a sack has now allowed 18 in the last four games. And you can attribute at least some of it to a communication gap for what you've lost in the left guard position. At least when Titus Howard was there, you didn't see as many communication issues as you've seen now in the last couple of weeks, certainly with Juice Scruggs at left guard. So it would be a concern for me. Yeah, I want to ask you about this week against the fake Oilers it's a real Oilers hat, not a fake Oilers hat. Any big keys for the Texans against the fake Oilers? Like, what what are you looking at? Obviously, besides we're, we're waiting for the quarterback situation, but what are you looking at from the Texans' angle and how they 
go at Will Levis and this uh, this Titans team? Well, just from an offensive perspective, man, from a team-wide perspective, like I'm that much more intimidated by facing the Titans now, already a road game, already against an AFC South opponent. You already kind of expect a mucked-up game in that regard anyway. Just this division beats up on each other every year, it seems. So there's that. Two, what the Titans just did to the Miami Dolphins inside the last three minutes, down 14 points, taking the ball over with 434 in the fourth quarter and having Will Levis complete two two touchdown drives and a two-point conversion to beat a Miami Dolphins team who is leading their division and playing some really good football. I mean, that's now a couple of stinkers that the Dolphins have lost you know, this season, but they're still regarded as one of the more marquee teams in all of the NFL now. That concerns me. It's a five and eight football team, but, you know, does, is there that momentum carryover? And again, yeah. which they were already going to try to stick it to you with wearing the uniforms, putting Billy White shoes in their ring of honor, you know, that whole thing. They're going to be juiced up. Fans are going to be juiced up. It's a road game. I don't know what the elements are going to be. But let me throw this one at you. Let's just talk football. Derrick Henry is still fourth in the league in rushing. Like, don't tell me that the dude's fallen off. I don't care. I think the last four games that he's played against the Texans, he's rushed for more than 200 yards. He gets up for it. He's still really good. This is the eighth best defense against the run, D'Amico's defense. But you're going to be without Blake Cashman. That concerns me. That's been a thumper. He's been involved and should be credited with that success uh, in the defense, and he's not going to be there. Uh, that concerns me. First and foremost is a team that has their backup against a wall that has to put together maybe their most complimentary football game to date. It's going to be without some of their best players potentially to do so. It's going to be a very, very difficult game for the Texans on Sunday, at least going in on paper. Yeah, the Derrick Henry stuff. You would be concerned if this was the same Texans rush defense, but they've, they've been in a really good rush defense this year, even with guys in and out of the lineup, linebackers in and out, secondary guys in and out. So from that standpoint, it's been pretty good. Derrick Henry, I don't think it's he's starting to slip just a hair, just a little bit. We'll see. Maybe something changes this week, but, you know, it seems like he's not doing quite as much. I will say, yeah, they beat Miami. But Tyreek Hill got hurt early, was out most of the game. They had some key injuries in that game. The the one, the Miami Dolphins, that's you know, been winning a lot of these games. So, and also. Hey, hey hold on, hold on. Before you say that, and I, I get it. I get it. It's one game and it's done and it's over with. This is a stat that blew my mind, especially taking into account who they have coaching their team. Okay, Mike McDaniel. But when the entire NFL prior to Monday night, was 767 and zero in losing games when you're up by 14 points with three minutes or less time to go in the game. That's crazy. That's crazy. Like, wipe that off board. Like, those in game betters, you know, that put money on that one for the Titans. I don't want to know. I'm just going to be even more depressed, like how much money somebody probably won on that sucker. But that number blew my mind. And if I saw like if somebody won like a million dollars on an in-game bet in the last three minutes, I would be really even more depressed. But there's just that element to it. And 
Maybe Derrick Henry hadn't been as inspired. Maybe this kind of kickstarts him even more in the fact that he's playing against an organization in which he's absolutely dominated throughout the course of his career. And he gets to do it at home this time where they're wearing the old oiler blue. I mean, that's something. I, I just, I'm, I'm worried about it. If you had bad vibes about the Jets game, if you had bad vibes about the Carolina game, if you had bad vibes about the Falcons game, you should definitely have bad vibes about this Titans game going in. Whatever. You're not going to convince me that anybody in Nashville is going to get pumped up about wearing Oilers stuff that they had nothing to do with. Any of the players are going to get pumped up about it. They had nothing to do. Billy White Shoes Johnson. Does anybody in Nashville know the hell know who the hell Billy White Shoes Johnson? No, but they know that we care about it. The fan. I'm talking about fans. I ain't talking about a dang running back or yeah. offensive line. The fans I, know that we. I care don't even about know it. if I don't even know if they know that we care because I don't Absolutely even know. Absolutely, they do. They're doing Bud Adams double rods to us all this week. They're going to be doing it on Sunday. They know people in Houston absolutely are chapped up about it. And look, I know there's some in Houston that say they don't care, but I think a lot of people really, really do. And the fact that even some of them do, they're making us miserable for this week leading up to, I obviously care. Like, I think it's just horrible that they're getting a chance to do this on this day. Yeah, but- I don't believe that the Twitterati are the same people that show up to the football game. So I don't know about that. But anyway, I, one of the things I wanted to ask you was, what do you think about Derek Stingley promoting himself for the Pro Bowl after playing a grand total of seven games? How's he promoting himself? What did I miss? What's oh, he, he retweeted that, uh, you know, the Pro Bowl, vote for me, vote for me on the Pro Bowl. He was retweeting that. He's got a bunch of retweets on uh, that, too. It's a, a retweet. Thousand. It's a retweet. Why wouldn't you retweet yourself? If you're going to be on Twitter and you see that, yeah, I'll retweet it. Cool. Why not? He tweeted out. Pro Bowl vote at Stingley. This is every week retweet. He didn't retweet that. He tweeted it out. I'm saying that got retweeted about 2,200 times. So he he did the original tweet. Vote okay. for me. So well, yeah, I I don't, I don't know. know. It's just to me, it's stupid. Like you, I don't know. Like has C.J. Stroud done that? Well, C.J. Stroud played all the games. Like I'm just Stingley, asking you. Like, would you feel differently if C.J. Stroud, you know, yeah, have... yeah, because he's actually showed up, and Derek Stingley has a has a history now of just not showing up to all the games. I know he's injured, but dude, you seven games—that's all you play this year. Like, and yeah, three out know, of the last were, four have been pretty good, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, three games does not make a Pro Bowler. I'm sorry, you know, but anyway, let's uh, let's move to last thing I wanted to talk to you, and um, this week we. We lost a really almost Forrest Gump-like Houston baseball figure when he passed away this week at 98. Larry Miggins was the third oldest living Major League Baseball player. He played for the Minor League Houston Buffs, which was Houston's pro baseball team until the Astros arrived, if you don't know. And from there, he was eventually called up to the Cardinals. Sean, did you ever get a chance to meet him? Absolutely. Many times. Uh, him and my grandfather were good friends. My grandfather is Frank Mancuso. They were teammates on the Buffs together back in 1953 and were good friends throughout their uh, you know, baseball careers. Even when my grandfather became a politician, they remained really good friends. Larry actually was at the house after my grandfather's funeral, and it's one of uh, my most cherished memories. He'd sang an old Irish song. Uh, with everybody gathered around the table. And this was his, you know, parting, you know, for the day. This is what he was going to kind of leave us with. He sang a great Irish song. And then he sang, take me out to the ball game with, with, at the time, 
you know, left me in absolute tears. And I'm kind of getting choked up now talking about it. And he, um, he pulled, I don't know where this came from. It was a big box, but it, it's like he pulled it out of his back pocket. Now, if you didn't know Larry Miggins, you never seen him before. This is a giant of a man. You know, he stood about six, five, just towered over everybody. It, it, it's like he'd pull out this gigantic box of, you know, Bailey's <laughs> with two glasses in it. And he gave it to me. And, you know, it was just kind of, uh, you know, a thing that he was going to leave me with. And I, to this day, have yet to crack the seal on that box. And I, I, I don't know what I'm saving it for. I'd always said that I was going to save it for a special moment and special occasion. And, you know, with his passing, I even thought last night when I saw the news, that, you know, maybe now is the time. I don't know when the right time is. But if I was ever to crack it, it would certainly be to pay homage to him, uh, give him a big cheers, a heavenly cheers uh, for sure. He was he was one of the nicest people uh, that my grandfather was really close with that I'd ever met. And to extend that same grace to people that he didn't even know uh, very closely, that, that just meant the world to me. He made an impression on me just because of his kindness, his knowledge, just seeing how he interacted with people. And as for all of those reasons uh, and everything that I obviously knew about his baseball career and his family, which is absolutely legendary in the city of Houston for their love of history and baseball and participation in so many different events, um, he's he's going to be missed by many but not as many as he should because the city really needs to keep legacies of people like him alive and recognize them in their hall of fame and i certainly hope that he along with the other four horsemen of major league baseball in the city of houston my grandfather my great uncle gus mancuso along with sally hemis uh, and jerry witty for that matter five uh, they, they all need to be remembered for um, for their contributions in baseball and to the city. Several years ago, I interviewed him for this show. I met him at the Houston Sabre meetings where he was a bit of a regular there. He invited me over to his place. Couldn't have been nicer, like you said. Even gave me a book he'd written about hitting when I walked in the door. Yeah. I didn't know him until, you know, then really. And that was it. And you can listen to the full interview I did on the YouTube channel. I want to play a piece of that conversation though even though he had only had a hundred major league at bats you'll understand shortly why i call him the forrest gump figure that he is and he starts off by telling how vin scully predicted his first major league home run you're now a longtime houstonian but you grew up in the bronx new york and you were the valedictorian at Fordham Prep. One of your high school classmates at Fordham Prep was Vince Scully. You and him both had big dreams at that time. Tell us that story. Well, we had an assembly when I was a senior at Fordham Prep. All the school got together in the assembly hall, and he was sitting right behind me. So anyway, he put his arms on my shoulder, and he said, Larry, someday you're going to be in the big leagues. And the first time you hit a home run, I'll be the announcer and tell the world about it. Well, I laughed about it, and I never thought of it much after that. But sure enough, 1952, this is nine years later, I was playing for the St. Louis Club, wasn't playing regular. How could I? When I had two Hall of Famers playing for the two outfield posts, there was only one spot open, and everybody in the, in the, in the organization was fighting for that one spot. So I played a little bit, uh, and uh, but I got up against Preacher Row. I think Eddie Sankey, the manager, figured this is big as his hometown. He must have all his friends and relatives here. He'd be up for this game. Let me put him in and see what happens. So they put me in, and sure enough, I hit one. I think it was the second time up against Preacher over the man on. Scully 
only had one or two innings to broadcast for Red Barber in those days because it was just starting out. But he had that inning, and uh, he talked about this story and related it to all the people in New York. And I heard about it from other people. It was great. Well, while you were in the minor leagues, you played also against Jackie Robinson in his first game with the Dodgers organization when he started with Montreal. What happened that day, April 23rd, 1946? Tell that story. Well, we were going over the hitters in the clubhouse before the game, and you take the scorecard and you go down the whole lineup, and it came to Robinson, and nobody knew Robinson. Never, They heard about him in the papers, but they never saw him play because he played with Kansas City Monarchs, I think, the year before. So the manager said, I want you batting practice and he's a strong pull hitter. Miggins, I was playing third base. He said, Miggins, play him deep at third base, which I did. So the first time up, he had a ground ball and a shortstop, we threw him out. It's the last time we got him out. <laughs> Next time up, he hit a homer over the left field stands. So he was a strong pull hitter, and I'm playing him back. Third time up, he dropped one down, and he could bunt. And I could throw. And I ran in, grabbed the ball through the first base, and just like that, he was safe. Because he could run, too. Fourth time up, he had a single to right field. So I guess it was three for four. And the fifth time up, I'm still playing deep. I don't know why I did, but I did. I never thought he'd bunt again, but he did, and he beat it out. So he ends up getting four for five and leading the league and hitting. No matter how bad things might have gone with Jackie in his career, he could always look back to that opening day in Jersey City <laughs> when he got four for five. And he got big and played him deep, and he had a great start in the game. God love him. I'm very proud that he, he did so well and, and uh, that I played a small part in making him a top hitter. <laughs> That's awesome. And, Sean, what are the odds you basically jumpstart Jackie Robinson's career and your high school classmate is the greatest baseball voice of all time and calls your first home run? It's baseball. <laughs> you only hear these kind of stories, it seems, in, in baseball, man. It's uh, I don't know what to say to, to, to that stuff. I mean, it's just uh, it was awesome to hear Larry, who I'd heard tell so many stories over the years. You know, how you're, you've been you, you go, you're in a room with two former ball players and maybe three, four, depending on what setting. And just to hear them talk ball and recount old stories, it's just, it was awesome. So it kind of took me back to a special place. But Larry Miggins, when you call him like the Forrest Gump of, of baseball, right right place, right time, just in, incredible. I mean, thank God you went to his house and you had that golden conversation with him. Those are why, uh, you know, journalism is important. Because they live on through that, that piece, you know, people uh, over the course of the next week, month, years, forever, are going to stumble upon that and listen to that. And uh, you'll, you'll never be able to hear it from, from the man again. What's crazier about the Scully calling his first home run is Miggins only had one more career home run. His first home run off Preacher Row, a five-time All-Star. His other home run is off a top-tier Hall of Fame pitcher. We talk about it in my interview, which I'm going to put the link to the end of the sh- at the end of the show if you're watching this on YouTube. So you're going to want to hear who he hit the other home run off of. Miggins, also part of a citizens committee that pushed the passage of a bond to build the Astrodome and He's inducted into the Texas Baseball Hall of Fame. And Sean Miggins stayed 
pretty busy after his baseball career. Not only was he a federal probation officer at Houston for years, but he and his wife had 12 kids, 12 kids. Yeah, 12 kids and uh, I don't know how many grandkids. It's a ton of close to two dozen, I think. <laughs> yeah, it was over 30. I think it was like 35 or something like uh, that. Yeah, it was crazy. I uh, I went to uh, elementary and middle school with two of them. <laughs> uh, he used to live uh, in the same neighborhood that I, I grew up in and, and went to school at. So, um, yeah, they were very busy. And, you know, his wife, Kathleen, man, is you know, I don't, I don't know how she's doing now as she's up in age, obviously. And the two were married for about 68 years. Uh, but she kept that red hair somehow, you know, for all these years. And she was just like the sweetest person, sharp as a tack. And they complimented each other so well. Like if Larry couldn't remember something, Kathleen would be right there, you know, to fill in the blank and uh, vice versa. It was, it was very, very cool. And uh, again, the city, the baseball community, lost a, a, a treasured individual man and again you you preface this he's the third oldest living major league baseball player at 98 you know fixing to be 99 i think in a few more months and um that's just uh an incredible life lived um and he'll be he'll be missed you know his connection to jackie robinson reminds me of the loss of the great andre brower one of my favorite Brower performances was really early in his career. He starred as Jackie in the court martial of Jackie Robinson. If anybody's interested, somebody posted the full movie on YouTube. It's free to watch. True story. Go check that out. You know, Sean, I remember back in 89, I saw the Civil War epic Glory at the theater. This was peak Morgan Freeman and Matthew Broderick. Denzel won his first Oscar for this performance, loaded with great, great performances. But Sean, I walked out of that movie wondering, who the hell is Andre Brower? Where did he come from? Just an incredible performance, and that's a great film. So just a real tip of the cap to him uh, as well. Yeah, it's been a while since I've seen that one. I didn't see it, obviously, when it first came out. I was like six or seven then. But I do know the movie you're referencing, Glory. And I've seen the Jackie Robinson uh, movie as well. Like, I'm sure I have that one on DVD somewhere at the house. And uh, it comes on MLB Network every once in a while. I do know they put that up there. I might have it recorded. So those are uh, that's definitely a movie everybody needs to check out. Yeah, people don't know. What glory is about, if you're unfamiliar with it, I get it, it's 33 years old, but it's about this black regiment that fought in the Civil War heroic battle and just the whole story behind that. It's incredible, incredible. It's a movie that I thought deserved, I couldn't believe it wasn't nominated for an Oscar. It was a great, though, year for Oscar-nominated movies, great year for movies in general. One of the movies nominated, they nominated that year was Field of Dreams along with, you know, Dead Poet Society. And I mean, it was just that, that year in movie was fantastic. But um, Glory gets lost a little bit. It gets lost, I think, in, you know, the Andre Brower thing, because everybody knows him from uh, Brooklyn, from the Brooklyn show and um, uh, Homicide Life on the Street, all the stuff that he's done yeah. over the last 25 yeah. years. But that was where it all started, really, for him. I do remember Field of Dreams. I actually saw that in the theaters. So that's kind of a cool thing. You just it made me remember 
sitting in the theater. That was probably the last movie that I ever saw with my grandfather <laughs> uh, was uh, Field of Dreams. You know, he was not much for going to a movie theater and sitting down for two, three hours watching something. But that was one that we did. That was uh, that was definitely an awesome year for movies. You just referenced three of them. So uh, I guess we got uh, the Texans live post game show. You're you're kind of fifty fifty, Sean. But if you can't be here, we're gonna we'll have a, a special guest for that one as well. So um, definitely doing live Texans Rockets tomorrow. Uh, thanks again, Sean, uh, from uh, taking care of us uh, after doing another four hours. I know uh, co-hosting out there on Sports Radio six ten. You're you're in studio right now. People don't recognize the background. That's uh, not Sean's house behind him the, the girls are not john's uh girls those are uh, sports radio 610 uh i guess stuff behind him or whatever it's good stuff yeah i don't mind being in here <laughs> <laughs> so we'll see you soon you're listening to houston sports talk hey don't forget to support us by subscribing and commenting on youtube you can always listen to us on Spotify, Apple, or your favorite podcast app. Tell your friends about us and share our show links on social media. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening.